Yes, my name is Robert McMillan, and you're all very welcome to the latest edition of Erchul and Hjoil, and his traditional music podcast in which we go behind the music and talk to trad A-listers about the people they are and the music they play. And for anyone who doesn't know, Andrehid is an arts centre based in Belfast which promotes the Irish language and traditional music throughout the city. Now, this week's guest is Liz Doherty, a fiddler, teacher, academic, and from what I hear, an all-round spreader of good cheer. You're very welcome to our Hulinkyoyles. Okay, now you're from uh, Inishowen. Uh, what was it like growing up in a place like uh, Bonkrana and was it a good place to hear traditional music? Do you know what? We were so blessed here in Bunkrana. Um, you know, I was learning my music in the late 70s and into the early 80s. And there was tons of music here at that time. And, you know, when I kind of look back on it now, it really was a bit of a golden age of music in this area. We had a, a hotel called the, the Swilly Hotel that has long since burned to the ground. But there used to be a folk club there. And, you know, as a kid, I got to hear things like Stockton's Wing and I remember Joe Burke and just amazing music kind of happening around. And we were all learning music from Danny McLaughlin and we were always rolled out to play, you know, the opening set of tunes or whatever. And just that experience of being around that, you know, kind of taking it for granted, not really realizing you were in the presence of greatness at the time. And and I guess that's the way kids learn, isn't it? But oh, absolutely. It was even. What was it that drew you to the fiddle? I mean, was it always going to be a fiddle that you played? Not necessarily, no. Um, my mother was mad into the dancing. Um, so I have three sisters, so we were all trotted out to the uh, dancing classes as soon as we could walk, uh, nearly before we could walk, in fact. And uh, yeah, so Dunny McLaughlin was teaching the dancing and then it was whoever was going to those classes got kind of hoofed across into the music classes. So we all started with a tin whistle. And then my mum's uncle, who kind of half reared us as well, he played the fiddle and had a fiddle and he was keen for us to, to kind of learn that. So it was him started me off. And uh, and then when I showed an interest in it, God love him, he gave me his fiddle. There wasn't much money and stuff at the time. And he gave me his fiddle and that kind of me starting to play stopped him playing, which is... Uh, the guilt, the guilt, you know, but um, but he's great and he's he's still alive. He's in his he's ninety three now, nearly, and uh, he's so proud of the fact that I'm playing and my boys are playing now. So all good. Okay, and you've done a great pair of in the interim. Um, what was it about uh, Denny McLaughlin? What, what did you learn from Denny in those uh, early years? Well, Dunny was a hugely uh, dynamic teacher, um, larger than life character, and. Um, do you know what? It was great because there were so many of us learning music at the time. It was that sense of community, wasn't it, you know, and that we all talk about it, but it was so real and just all my friends were playing music. We were all dancing. We were going to the competitions. We were going to the flas. And, you know, Dunny was was great. We didn't learn masses and masses of tunes and, and all of that. But what we learned, we learned very thoroughly. He was great for teaching bowing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that's something that I carry through into my teaching. Um, and... Just the experiences and getting all those opportunities with all those young musicians, the same ages as ourselves, was just phenomenal, you know. So amazing times and and great. Set us all on the right road, for sure. 
Yeah, so when did you decide that this was your future path, that you're going to be a professional musician? Uh, something that was unheard of probably until the, the 1960s. Yeah, absolutely. Of course, now I was not around in the 1960s. Let's just be clear about that. <laughs> it's not something else. I've been teaching for 30 years and I was like, oh my God, I'm ancient, but not quite um, from the 1960s. So just to clear that up, you know. Um, but, but, the, but the idea of professional musicians, you know, people paying, playing trad, uh, you know, for money professionally, that didn't come until the 60s or so. Uh, Absolutely, absolutely. And you know what? It was never actually part of my plan. And mm -hmm. um, I, when I was kind of at that age of leaving school and figuring out what I was going to do, um, in our house, it was always like, well, look, if you nobody had been to university and I was the eldest. So look, if you want to work hard at school and go to university, that's all possible. But if you don't put in that effort and work hard, then you're going to work in fruit of the loom like everybody else had done before me. Um, and I actually spent two summers when I was at a school working in fruit of the loom, um, which was brilliant. It was fantastic, but uh, it was definitely a good way for me to go, okay, I want to do something different. Um, and so I wanted to go to college and study music and I was going to be a teacher. Um, and it was only really when I was in Cork at UCC that um, hooked up with people like Niall Vallely and we started a band and all of a sudden I was being paid to play music and I was like, oh my goodness, this is amazing. You know, how, how did this happen? And uh, so it wasn't uh, my intention, but, but I was in the right on the right pathway to allow that to happen. And at various times I've kind of played more and played less, but you know what, it's, it's been great for, you know, for all of us since that era, as you, you know, pointed out that, you know, the opportunity to play music professionally um, has, has become a reality for so many people and it's great. And sure loads of us have traveled the world over and made a living from it, it's brilliant. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if we can just stay with your uh, academic uh, career, because you did go to uh, UCC and became a member of uh, NOMOS, and later you became head lecturer in traditional music at uh, UCC, and you've had many teaching posts since. What does a university education in traditional music give you that constant practicing and playing on the road and talking to other musicians can't? Well, um, I can say this now from a position of being a recovering academic, because as of earlier this year, I just left my post in academia. That's the second time I've stepped away from academia. Um, so I think that's telling me something. Um, do you know what? The whole academic thing is brilliant. I mean, I was so lucky that I was um, one of Mihalo Suluan students in Cork and again just been so fortunate being there at that time in the late 80s early 90s when things were absolutely at the, their heyday in Cork um, and the university was playing a big part um, in that with the combination and the, all the threads that were happening between music in the city and music in the university. Michal had so many brilliant new innovative ideas and you know we were running festivals and playing on TV shows and and you know what through him and him bringing us with him we were getting experience and shadowing like a real live musician without even really knowing we were doing it and that is something that a university can give you if you have the right people teaching you and who are open and generous enough to open those doors for you it doesn't always happen like that but when it does it's way above what the curriculum on paper can ever give you and it's certainly what stood to me all those places we traveled with Michal all those opportunities all those doors he opened for me um 
absolutely stu- have stood to me right through my career so far. Yeah. Has, well, you know, last question on academia. Has the curriculum changed much since uh, the, the 1990s? And of course, we're at Limerick now and the fantastic stuff that they're doing down there. It's changed hugely. I mean, even when I did my degree, it wasn't a traditional music degree. It was a very hardcore BMUS degree. Um, so I was studying Beethoven and Haydn and Bach, and I was doing Schenker analysis. And traditional music was one module in the whole suite of courses. Um, even in terms of performance, uh, you didn't get any credit. There was no marks awarded for performance. Uh, you had to pass a separate performance exam, but it didn't actually count towards your degree. Um, so it was very weighty. It was four years and there was a lot of, um, of academic reading and analysis and, and all of that. I mean, I was doing uh, figured bass on the harpsichord, which I was absolutely rubbish at, by the way. But um, it was, you know, it wasn't a traditional music degree at all. And when I um, took over the curriculum then in those years that I taught in UCC from 94 to 2000, Um, My contribution, I suppose, was I was hell-bent on making sure that for every classical music module that was there, that there was a traditional music equivalent. Mm -hmm. So instead of having just one trad music module, that there was one in analysis, that there was one in arrangement, there was one in group playing, so that everything was balanced out. um, And all the possibilities of the, the kind of the the themes that you could follow and really explore uh, in traditional music kind of opened up then. And obviously in Limerick then that has constituted a whole course as it has around the world, you know, in Newcastle, in Canada, uh, these courses now in traditional folk music are everywhere. um, And it shows how much depth that you can really look into um, in terms of an academic exercise around Mm -hmm. traditional music. Uh, from academia to etymology, um, both fiddle and violin are said to come from the same source, the Latin word vitulari, which means to rejoice, or maybe comes from the Roman goddess of uh, victory or jubilation, vitula. Now, you're a great believer in the joy of music, both in your playing and in your teaching. Is that the purpose of music? Is the purpose of music just to make people happy? Uh- uh, well, making people happy is one part of it, but also making people sad. Mm-hmm. Um, it's good when you make people cry as well. Uh, at that. <laughs> so it's about communication, isn't it? I, for me, music is just such a communicator. It's, um, uh, you know, it's about communicating the good, the bad and the ugly. Um, and it's there to kind of reflect and, and pass on all those emotions that we're, you know, we experience in every second of every day. Um, and for me, that's what it's about. And and I love looking at musicians when they play and I love seeing how their music reflects their personalities, you know. Um, and for me, that that always makes a really special musician when you know by the way they play, uh, you've kind of got the measure of them there as well. And it doesn't matter if it's all perfect all the time and, you know, that's grand, but it's it's about the... And it's not kind of thrown it away, it's about entertainment, it's about communication of kind of feeling the heart and soul of the person who's making the music and connecting with somebody else then who's listening to it. Okay. Um, very early in your career, did you take a shine to, I mean, with loads of uh, styles here, just in Donegal, but did you also take a shine to the music of uh, Shetland and to Scotland? and to Cape Breton especially, and why not let's throw in Finland as well? Did you always have this internationalist view of traditional music? 
Well, do you know what? I mean, as I said, I learned with Danny McLaughlin and one of the things that I didn't learn a lot about in those early years was uh, about repertoire and, you know, how broad it was and local styles and all of that. Um, I mean, we learned, a, you know, a, a number, a small number of tunes really well uh, with Danny, but that idea that there was all this world of sounds and differences and different ways of playing the same instrument was just such um, news to me when I was 17. And even going to Glen Colum Kill uh, the summer before I started university, uh, I remember uh, mommy was taking all my sisters to um, over to Scotland on holidays and I wanted to stay to go to the fiddle week in Glen. And oh my goodness, there was like war in the camp. She was absolutely horrified. What's wrong with Butlins? It was great. They had a great time, but I went again, Column Kill, and my world changed. So hey ho! <laughs> and I remember being in Buddy's pub that year. It was the first kind of summer school thing that I'd ever been at, and going into the pub, and just this wall of fiddle music just hit me. Um, and it was hair in the back of the neck moment for sure. Just the energy and the joy and all of that that goes with it. But also the oh my god, I don't know a single tune that they've played for the last seven hours here. Um, and thinking, I really have an awful lot to learn, don't I? And um, I remember that summer just spending every night, I was working, washing dishes in a restaurant and running home after the shifts and staying up to all hours, just playing over the tapes and learning tunes. And then when I did get to Cork and I was doing this music thing full time, I never left the library. And they, you know, UCC was rich with um recordings mostly lps of course and, and cassettes um of you know there was there was music from shetland there was music from all over ireland and music from the states and i spent hours and hours and hours in the library listening to all kinds of everything it was brilliant and then when i got the chance to to start meeting some musicians um, from these places i became really interested in the history and the context of it in, in different places so it was never that i was kind of not uh, leaning into the Donegal story. It was like, for me, learning about the Donegal tradition, you know, the Glen Column Kill, the South, um, the Southern Donegal tradition was as new and as exciting for me as learning about Shetland or Cape Breton. And I just went on this kind of voyage of discovery with them all. And mm. uh, yeah. You, you, you lived in uh, Cape Breton and that's where you did your uh, PhD on. The paradox of the periphery, evolution of the Cape Breton field tradition, 1929 to 1995. What was it especially about Cape Breton? Was it the music? Was it the, the lifestyle? Was it uh, the exoticism, maybe, of being over there? Everything? The well, it was all of the above, really. I mean, again, you know, when I finished my degree in Cork, I had, again, you know, to keep everybody happy, signed up to do the HDIP and get a job as a teacher. And I had a school and all secured in Cork. And I met me all one day and he was like, are you really going to do this? And he was like, OK, if I just give you a million pounds now and said you can do whatever you want, what would you do? And I said, I would go to Cape Breton. And he said, where is that? And I says, oh, it's in France. <laughs> <laughs> or is it wasn't at all of us in Canada but sure what did I know but um anyway it was um he was like well if that's what you want to do let's see if we can make it happen and mm -hmm. literally everything changed from then and uh I, I just loved the music I loved the piano actually was mm -hmm. the first thing that really attracted me to it um and it took a while for me to kind of ease into the fiddle sound and then I became a bit obsessed about it and I went again looking to see who else had been there um people like Maura O'Keefe 
were amazing. Maura had spent time there. She was working on the Pure Drop. Uh, the Pure, was it the Pure Drop? One of the RTE the, um, radio shows at the time. And she was brilliant. She kind of shared loads of her recordings with me. And so by the time I went, I kind of had an idea of what it sounded like. But I, what I wasn't expecting was that the, the environment in which music happened was so different to what we were used to. You know, we were coming from the pub sessions um, and all of that. In Cape Breton, there was one pub on the island whenever I arrived there in the early 90s. So all the music happened in people's houses and all the fiddle players played one at a time. The idea of the session was not a thing. It scared the living daylights out of me. It was like I was well hidden in the session and well hidden behind, you know, the concertina and Nomos. And, you know, I was always in the background, but it was like, oh, my goodness, you're exposed here right from day one. But the piano was always there um, and the dancing. And it was so, so different. Um, and I think it was that it was familiar, but but kind of, it's always felt to me that it was what you would have imagined Ireland to have been like 50 years before. Mm-hmm. And... I just loved it. Um, and sure, look, I was there. I had neither chick nor child. I was in, you know, and I wasn't going to college every single day. It was all about just being around the music. It was just, when I think back to it, oh my goodness, it was a gift in time that, you know, the likes of I'll never get again, for sure. And the people were amazing. They just uh, took me on board. You know, at this at this time, this was before Celtic Colours, even before Celtic Connections was a thing. Mm. So the idea of people flying over and back was not common at all. So I was a bit of a novelty there. And look, within the first week, I had been in the recording studio with Jerry Holland. I was at a wedding with some of the uh, musicians over there who, who they were getting married. And at a house party, they went on for four days. <laughs> and, uh, and my favourite thing of all was um, I got to play with John Morris Rankin who was my all-time favourite piano player and who sadly has died since. But uh, that happened within the first 24 hours of me being <laughs> a breath. And I was like, oh, I, I'm done now. This, it can't get any better than this. But it, it kept getting better. And, and four years later, I was still over and back. So brilliant, brilliant place and brilliant people and amazing music. Yeah, strange. Uh, three things. First thing, that's the thing I noticed about Cape Breton music, the piano and how lively and wonderful and jolly and uh, uplifting it was. And the second thing is, I presume Michal didn't give you the million quid to go? Sadly not. No, actually, now that you mention it. <laughs> and the, the third thing, well, some people think the solo player is the pinnacle of uh, achievement. You've mostly played with groups. We've m- uh, mentioned Nomos uh, earlier with the Bumblebees. But I wanted to ask you about the idea of fiddlesticks the 16-piece ensemble of fiddle players that you put together in the early 2000s. What was the idea behind that? So, um, again, I've always had these kind of couple of things going on at the same time. So I had my academic hat on where I was lecturing in the university, and then I was gigging and playing and doing a bit of touring with um, different bands and so on. And through that, I was getting to go to loads of festivals and meet all these musicians. And again, you know, remember the time this was, you know, the early 1990s and, um, you know, even into the late 1990s. And the internet wasn't a thing. And, you know, Celtic Connections had just started. And this idea of, you know, flitting between all these areas and meeting musicians and hearing Scottish tunes and learning Cape Breton tunes wasn't kind of as commonplace as it's become. Um, And so I was hearing all these, this different repertoire and was really keen to and excited to bring it back to the students who were in Cork. 
And uh, so I had this idea for a course that instead of talking about it, that we would all just take our fiddles and we would talk about the history of the tunes and where they came from. And so I could introduce Shetland to them and, and so on. But we do it through tunes, through sharing tunes. Mm. And, uh, and it just occurred to me that, oh, my goodness, everybody sitting around me here is playing the fiddle. Most of them were women as well. And it was like, how will we, instead of... Um, writing an essay then you do all this practical learning instead of writing an essay why don't we put on a concert and we'll do it as I, we talk a bit about it and we'll play the tunes and we did it in the Triscoll Arts Centre in Cork and again it's back to that wall of fiddles which is obviously my happy place and it was amazing and I think it kind of changed a bit of the way traditional music was taught and the the possibilities of examination and stuff within the academic scene as well at that time and it really did. It was like, oh, this is brilliant, Cracker. Come on, we'll, uh, we'll go away for a weekend and do some workshops. Oh, come on, we'll make an album. And it really, it really kind of went from there. And, you know, through the years, people like, you know, Liz Kane was in it, uh, Mave O'Hare, Tara Conahan, like the cream of the crop when it comes to fiddle players. But sure, of course, it changed every year because people would graduate and then first years would come in. So it was like, okay, and here I was still there, you know, years on, playing the same tunes, bringing new ones in, seeing other ones off and so on. But it was class and I'm still so proud of that, that wee album that we did um, in, in Cork with, with Fiddlesticks. It's gorgeous. Okay. Um, has, the, has the, the idea come round again in She Fiddlers? This new group that you are, are not uh, involved in and who have just released an album, I believe? Is it true? It is true. Back to the, the women playing the fiddle. It's all great, Sherlock. All is well in the world, huh? Um, well, I can take no credit for this now. Um, Tara Conaghan uh, from Glenties, who again had been in Cork with me years ago, uh, had been speaking to the Ergal Arts Festival um, a few years ago and put together a show um, gathering up all the women of the Donegal fiddle music because... You know, as we all know, when we think of Donegal fiddle, it's often, you know, John Doherty and Con Cassidy and James Bird, all those legends, absolutely. But the women were not uh, a big part of it um, or certainly a publicly um, visible part of it for a long time. And, and you know, as the story went on, we have Mairead Mooney, we have Breed Harper, you know, myself, Rosha McGrory, Tar you know, all these women were coming through on the scene and it was just an opportunity to kind of gather everybody up and, and put on this and the idea of the album was talked about then and uh yeah Tara and a few of them Ashling, there's great workers in that crew and they've made it all happen and the album got recorded back in October and is now released so very excited to to have that on the go as well. Right well the obvious question is is there a difference between a man's style of playing music and uh, do women play fiddle differently to men? Well, do you know what? I mean, that's something that people ask all the time. And I remember people even asked me that in Cape Breton as well. And sometimes the easy throwaway thing is, oh, you know, the men have more power. And in fact, there is a, a famous recording of John Doherty saying that about one of his sisters playing the fiddle. Oh, she <laughs> never make a fiddle player. She's too dainty. And I was like, they've never obviously seen me. Um, <laughs> and I mean, look, all I can say is like, look at somebody like Mairead Mooney playing. And I think that answers your question. I mean, you can't get more drive, more energy, more rhythm. 
it's to me it's all about it comes down to personality as well and it's much more individual than just gender um you know so if you looked at Mairead Mooney and Martin Hayes and you were going for the oh if it's all sweet and delicate then that would be the female and if it's got lots of energy and rhythm and life to it um, and that would immediately dispel that argument so I rest my case. <laughs> Yes, I think the jury will find in your favour, uh, I do believe. Traditional music, song and dance, it was, again, back to the 60s and well before the 60s, uh, of course, it was, uh, it was part of your everyday life in Donegal and elsewhere. And lilters and fiddlers and melodeon players wrote part of uh, a, dance, a dance tradition, which was um, just the main source of uh, entertainment for the majority of people. Some would say now that it's become too commercialised uh, and that, that there, there are a group of musicians uh, who Tony McMahon, I think it was back in 1995 at the Crossroads Festivals, uh, described uh, some people as those who regard music as a convenient mode of joyriding to the glitzy heights of commercial popularity and success. Do you agree with them? <laughs> <laughs> I'm feeling the guilt here because I was myself and Fintan Valley were among the people who organised that Crossroads conference and I remember that moment well <laughs> um, for sure and you know what it was a great it was a great event and great lively discussion and debate around traditional music which I think is brilliant I think and you need people like Tony uh, to, to to bear the torch whether you agree with him or not, it's 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 one. It's, it doesn't really matter. But he he talks with authority. He talks very gruffly uh, out of love, and um, for the for the uh, tradition as well. So he's a very important uh, voice to listen to. And there are many like him, and people will disagree. But that's part of the big debate that needs to be had about traditional music. I agree completely um, and totally respect all of those views. And if we didn't have them, I think we'd just kind of just all merge into this kind of cultural grey out where we're all in this kind of no man's land and all happy, happy and, and nobody's really happy at all. I mean, I think it's far healthier that we have, um, you know, some really strong conservative opinions and some real traditionalists and that we have uh, other people who are, you know, looking uh, at new ways of trying things. And then we have all the pieces in the middle then where people are, are trying, trying out new ideas. And for me, I see the healthiest place as being when we have that, you know, if you think of it as a, as a cross almost, that we have the, the broader, wider, horizontal view, but that you have people going back to the well as well. And even within a single person to look wide, but also digging deep and going back to the well. And it's the point where the two of those kind of connect is where the, the energy and the electricity happens. Um, and for me, it's if you can manage a good balance, because it's not great if you're just in one lane or the other and the two never connect. Um, but there's a real energy and a real special moment if you can find a way for, for the two of them to come together. And that's where a lot of the magic happens. But you need kind of advocates then on both sides of the fence, people mm -hmm. who are, you know, advocating for the, you know, look at everything, look at every opportunities, look at new ways. And then people who are, you know, really digging in and um, holding firmly onto the tradition um, and absolutely um, any debate and any discussion and anything that that is properly engaging people is much more uh, valuable than just uh, Asher's old grand. We'll just keep doing it this way. That's not gross in my mind. Okay. 
I've kept the hardest question just following on from that, from what you said. Um, I'm going to ask everybody this. When you listen to young musicians, they will tell you that they want to try new things, although they have huge respect for the tradition and the well, as a lot of people describe it as. What is that tradition? What is that well? Can you describe it? Can you hear it? Can you play it? Do we know exactly what it is? What is this thing that people talk about when they talk about the tradition? Yeah, I mean, that's such a such a good question and so many um, kind of ways to, to answer that and to think about that really, isn't there? Um, I mean, a lot of what we've had in traditional music up until now is a lot of tacit understanding of what we're, we're all doing. Um, there's a real kind of, there's a lot of wordless knowledge there that we all kind of know it when we see it and know it when we hear it, but articulating that can be quite difficult. Um, and I do think it's really important that that we, we hold on to that, but that maybe we do find ways to better articulate what it is that we're all about. And the reason I think that that's important is, you know, um, increasingly traditional musicians um, are finding themselves at the table of, you know, funders or at the doors, sometimes instead of at the tables, you know, for funding applications um, and so on. And we can kind of go so far in describing and explaining what we do. And at a certain point, it's like, but sure, you know. Um, and it's like, but no, they don't know. And I can say that having worked with these organizations as well. Um, and it's something that I've become kind of quite occupied with uh, this last week while is trying to find ways to help musicians more, better articulate what it is that, that we are doing, because it is important if we can't say it in words as well as through our music, then it's hard for us to make a case to the funding bodies and so on. Um, and I also think for, for young musicians who are experimenting with other traditions, it is really important that they're able to um, understand um, and express as well as musically, but also verbally, uh, where the new and the old are kind of converging um, and to explain what it is they're doing, because otherwise kind of new music starts happening without any clarity uh, on where it's coming from and where it's going to. And um, I've had some really interesting discussions this last while because, as you know, I have um, set up my own new venture, which is to help teachers of traditional music. And um, because for me, this has been one of the areas that that hasn't really had much support. Um, and teaching traditional music is a really tough old job because you're kind of making everything up as you go along. You have to make up your curriculum, you have to make up your own teaching techniques, you have to gather your own resources, you have to kind of do it with a bit of authority and you'll be going, oh my goodness, I haven't a clue if I'm doing it well or badly. And there's some amazing teachers out there for sure, but there's people who, who do find it tough. Um, and particularly in the environment we find ourselves in now, lots of people are considering teaching maybe for the first time as well. And just because you can play it doesn't make you a great teacher. So you do need a bit of help and a bit of training and support. But one of the things um, in that, which you refer to in your question is, um, you know, about young people who are all playing so technically well from a really young age now. And that's really different from, from anybody my generation and above. You know, Jeepers, they're doing things I, I don't think I'll ever manage to achieve, um, which is fantastic. And then you listen to older musicians looking and listening to them playing and saying, oh, there's something missing. And 
it is that kind of lived experience and experience and that kind of you need to give it time to properly filter in and properly kind of become part of you and I think that you know that idea of becoming a traditional musician that can't happen in two years or five years there is kind of a life lived is part of it as well and you know you learn something but it, it doesn't properly become yours until you've tried it on tried it out tweaked it uh, worked with it you know spat it out taken it on again and kind of worked with it some more um, and it's this kind of ongoing cycle um, of becoming a traditional musician that's really important. And, you know, it's not about harvesting too soon. I kind of worry that sometimes there's a real, because everything is so accessible now, you can nearly harvest too soon in terms of you can peak, you can learn all the things that can be learned by the time you're 15 or 16. But that doesn't necessarily give you that depth and that richness that is, there's many more layers to this tradition of ours than just the, no the notes and the sounds that come out. There's the emotion, there's the history, there's the, uh, you know, you're thinking of the past, you're thinking of what you're going to do with it in the musical moment. There's so many layers. It's a very complex thing it is indeed. And that can't be learned as such. It has to be lived. And that's kind of what I think. So that's the big message then for young musicians. Uh, it's not a sprint, it's, it's a marathon. And they have to take time with it. It's a lifelong learning journey in a nutshell. And I know that can sound a bit trite, but it is a le lifelong learning journey. And any of the great masters of the tradition would be the first to have told you or to tell you for all of those who are still doing their thing amazingly today, that they are learning every single day. It's not like, oh, I'm done learning. Now I'm a musician. That moment never arrives. And if you're open to that and open to all the possibilities that that allows you, um, I think that would help uh, kind of transform a lot of the, the learning and the just the, the playing, the being a traditional musician uh, for everybody. Okay, well, this is my third podcast and I've hated every one of them because there comes a time when you have to say, well, well that's, all, that's all we have time for because the, the people we've been speaking to are so uh, eloquent, are so, again, it's that word love, we're so, so in love with the, the music as well. And I think about passing it on to everyone is such a uh, social and communal thing that uh, it's such a wonderful thing that we have uh, amongst us. So and many thanks for that, Liz. It's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, speaking to you and a big thanks of course to everyone who has tuned in to the Urkhul and Kyoi podcast from Andrehid. But finally, I asked Liz a question earlier. Uh, to play us out, Liz Dummerling, which of your recorded works represents best, do you think, uh, what you've been doing over your musical career? A difficult question I know, but have a go. I know, I know. And do you know what? When you asked me that earlier, it was, again, made me feel absolutely mortified that my last solo effort was back in 2002. I really do need to get the finger out and practice and think about yes. it sometime, don't I? But anyway, I'm going to go with the first track of um, Queer Imagination. Um, and it's a tune called Johnny Sunshine and the Blue Lamp. So again, that's me uh, going far and wide for my tune sources. But what I love about this is that uh, it has loads of friends from different parts of the world. We have Ryan McNeil from Cape Breton on piano, Tony McManus from Scotland on guitar, and then Jerry O'Connor, Jerry, uh, Jerry Fiddle, Jerry Banjo O'Connor on the fiddle, though. Um, so Jerry Banjo on the fiddle, there you go, um, uh, from Tipperary, obviously living in Dublin. 
and then Daniel Lapp from Vancouver in Canada. So it's my whole kind of global uh, fiddle family playing on this. And um, it just makes me smile and remember all those great times with brilliant people along the way. So Johnny Sunshine it is. Okay, so we're going to leave you with that. Uh, Grabila Markov is a very shop. Ex Murders, let's see, and to manage Funya Shiva Alco, Erla Ita Gruma, Tivumi, Ach Milwurbinis Far, Gaza Liz Doherty, Augusta Harja Kyoibur, Agassi Idolig, Exchenium, Johnny Sunshine.
well, that's all for today, folks. So until the next time, from me, Robert McMillan, and the Erchudan Choil podcast from Madrid, Slanagas Banacht.